everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and I am happy to be joined, as I often am, by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Joe's going to tell us about the myriad of topics that we're going to cover today. I can't wait. This is a really meaty episode. All right, Jessica, I know that you're chomping at the bit. It has indeed been a very busy week here at Passing Judgment World Headquarters with an array of legal news to discuss. First, big news regarding the investigations of the Trump Organization. There are indictments that have finally arrived. Next up will be two final decisions released by the Supreme Court, one that essentially guts what was left of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and another that invalidates a state policy that required nonprofits to disclose donor lists. Then we'll discuss what Jessica thinks legally, why uh, we should celebrate the decision freeing Bill Cosby from a Pennsylvania prison. And finally, we'll briefly reflect on the life of former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, who died on Tuesday. But let's start with the biggest legal news of the week, the indictment of Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg. We've been watching this case out of the Southern District of New York for some time. For better or for worse, anything with the name of Trump attached to it draws attention in the media and elsewhere. Jessica, can you give us a bit of background on the origin of these indictments? Absolutely. As you said, these are long-term investigations. And this is either, everybody, the first round of indictments and there will be more to come, or this is really about all we are going to see. And I think that's the big question coming out of these indictments. Now, even if this is all we see, this is still historic. We have a former president of the United States defending his family business from criminal investigation. Let's remember a little bit about how these investigations began. The president's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen, initially testified about these hush money payments that were paid by the Trump organization or by others to women to basically silence them and have them not admit to having had affairs with then-candidate Trump. And those uh, hush money payments were allegedly not properly characterized. But then the investigation actually expands beyond the hush money payments. And the reports are that the New York DA's office and the New York AG's office starts looking into tax fraud and banking fraud, that essentially what they're looking at is whether or not the Trump organization improperly said, oh, our properties really aren't worth very much when it comes to paying taxes. And then when it comes to trying to get loans or insurance, they say, oh, our properties are really worth a lot of money. And that, again, is the crux of what was a fairly complicated investigation. There was obviously a lengthy fight about Uh, getting President Trump's financial information. It went up and down to the Supreme Court. Finally, the Supreme Court said in February 2021, after the president left office, that in fact, he did need to turn over um, those documents. And so these indictments of the Trump organization and of Trump CFO, Alan Weisselberg, This is either the end of the tale or this is somewhere in the middle. I will say legal experts are really divided. What we know is that the main thing that was charged is that their 15-year scheme of trying to evade taxes and specifically 
of executives being paid fringe benefits, compensations that aren't part of their base salary and not paying taxes on those benefits. So what do we mean by fringe benefits? Maybe you get a car from the Trump organization. Maybe you get a plane. Maybe your kid's private school is paid for. Um, So I think this main indictment that we saw here, it really deals with this issue of fringe benefits and not paying your taxes on those. All right, Jessica, in terms of the Trump organization, what are the consequences for that? Well, potentially dire. So for the Trump organization, I think every lender will say, we'd like our loan now. And there's no way that the Trump organization can pay them all back at the same time. And this could lead to the bankruptcy of the you know famous, infamous Trump organization. And you know, what does it mean for members of the Trump organization? That's the big question, whether or not this will put pressure on Alan Weiselberg to provide evidence about others. And of course, by others, Joe, you and I really mean former President Trump. Exactamundo, Jessica. That brings us to the 8 million pound gorilla in the room. What about the liability for Donald Trump himself? What are the potential political consequences for the former president? And is he personally exposed, legally speaking? Do you think that Trump himself will face indictments of his own down the road? Yeah, let's take the last question first. Will he face indictments? Um, This is both a legal opinion and the opinion of somebody who's just watched the former president seem to escape liability time and time again, which is, I don't think the indictments will reach him, in part because he seems to be very good about not leaving a paper trail. So we know that he doesn't email, he doesn't text. Basically, what he writes is typically public. It's in a tweet. And so when you're talking about these criminal charges for financial crimes, we have to think about the fact that you would need to prove a level of intent more than just a level of awareness. And given the fact that President Trump doesn't really put a lot in writing, I'm not sure that they will be able to show that he formed that criminal level of intent such that it's fair to charge him with any of these crimes, with anything related to tax evasion or banking fraud or insurance fraud. Um, I... I know there are a lot of people who are probably listening to Passing Judgment who would have wanted to hear a different answer, but one of the things that has come out of the Trump administration is we really should be dedicated to the rule of law, and if you can't, as a prosecutor, go forward with a straight face, then even though it would let somebody who many of us maybe want to see him pay more concrete consequences... Um, evade those, we really do need to think about the system and protecting the system. Now, that doesn't mean that if President Trump gets to walk free, that's necessarily fair, but we don't want prosecutors charging crimes just because it's going to make the rest of us feel better or because we're going to have a cathartic moment. So look, for the President of the United States, the political consequences, the former president, not much of this is new. Uh, I don't think his base will leave him. Uh, I think they'll hear this. They'll hear what he says, which is longest political witch hunt in history. They'll accept that. Uh, The question will be, what about the 
rest of the voters, because his base alone is not enough for a win in the Electoral College. And I don't know the answer to that question as we now sit here in July of 2021. Alrighty, Jessica, we opened the second season of Passing Judgment last fall, and we've talked a lot about Supreme Court news along the way. That session wrapped up on Thursday with two decisions with far-reaching consequences. Both of the final cases found the court divided along ideological divisions. Can you first tell us about the Arizona voting rights case, Jessica? I can. And as you said, this last day of the decision was so interesting because it was a day where we, oh, there it is. There are the six to three conservative to liberal decisions. And we really saw, in my perspective, a very hard right turn. And you can see in both of these cases, what's interesting is they deal with the political process and they deal with the laws of our democracy and how we can, in direct and indirect ways, hold our officials and our candidates accountable. And in both decisions, I think, frankly, they're just really a disaster for our representative system of government. So you asked me about the first disaster first. Joe, let's talk about that, the Arizona voting rights case. Now, really briefly, we've talked about this case before. There were two provisions at issue. One said, if you go to a precinct to vote on election day and it's the wrong precinct, your entire ballot will be trashed. Another said, if you want somebody else to return your ballot for you early, uh, somebody who's not a mail carrier, It's a fairly narrow group of people who can actually return that ballot. In both cases, challengers sued and they said these provisions violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 2 really generally says, basically, don't tread on my vote because I'm a minority, meaning don't burden my right to vote because I'm a member of a race or um, language minority. I'm not saying... I am. I'm saying that's how the statute reads. And the big question in this case, Joe, as we talked about, it wasn't what's going to happen for those two provisions in Arizona, although obviously it deeply matters to voters in Arizona. It was what test is the court going to use going forward for people to be able to show that there has been a Section 2 violation? Now, why do we care so much about Section 2? Because back in 2013, in a case called Shelby County, the Supreme Court basically eviscerated the other half of the Voting Rights Act, which is Section 5. I won't go into a whole um, (laughs) discussion of Section 5 right now, but I think for listeners, what they want to know is how much harder will it now be to bring a case showing that there is discrimination, there's voting discrimination based on a law or a procedure such that their rights can be vindicated under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, under what's left of the Voting Rights Act? And the answer is extremely hard. I mean, very, very difficult. Justice Alito wrote the opinion for the court, and he wrote the opinion in a way that will make it so difficult for plaintiffs to show that a voting law or a procedure that burdens them on the basis of race actually violates the Voting Rights Act. It's hard to imagine a great deal of scenarios where you could be successful under Section 2 now. Um, And, you know, let's situate this, Joe, historically. 
where are we? We're at a moment in our nation's history where a lot of states have either passed or are trying to pass what I would view as restrictive voting laws. Uh, This is not the moment where you want there to be virtually no protection on the federal level for voting rights. So, you know, what, what does this mean? One can say, oh, well, there's a lot more pressure now on Congress to pass national voting rights legislation. What are the problems here? Problem number one, Congress would actually have to act and the Senate would somehow have to get two thirds of the members of the Senate to say, yes, we agree, we want to protect your right to vote in this way. Problem number two, Joe, which comes out of this case, although it's not a new concern, is that Justice Alito really seems to say to Congress, if you wanna act in this area, be really careful not to invade states' rights. That was part of what was going on in the decision, that 2013 decision in Shelby County. And there are a couple of ways where Congress could try to insulate itself um, if it wants to pass a law that would protect our voting rights. But that's a scary proclamation from the Supreme Court. So I don't have a a joke to lessen the tension here. I don't have a punchline. I just have a, that was a decision that was actually worse than many of us had anticipated. All right, Jessica, how about those tea leaves? Do you think this decision will lead to additional erosion of voting rights? I know I've seen you writing about this particular topic. Yeah, I think so, because now states know that there really is not a a piece of federal legislation that will allow plaintiffs to challenge these restrictive voting laws. Now, obviously, there are still state laws. uh, There's still the U.S. Constitution. But one of the huge protections that was at least potentially available to plaintiffs throughout the country who were complaining about laws burdening their right to vote, um, as far as I can see, is now gone. Now, Let's remember just for a minute, when we think about when we should be suspicious of what lawmakers do, it really is in situations where they're basically trying to insulate themselves from accountability. They're trying to make it harder for us to have an opportunity to participate in the political process, again, to participate in our government. And... I I don't see that continuing to happen. I don't see that suspicion. And I think at least in the short term, this is going to be a really precarious time for voting rights in America. Thank you, Jessica. And that leaves the final decision of the 2020-21 Supreme Court term, which involves a case that originated in our home state of California. California had a law that forced nonprofits to submit a list of their wealthy donors to the state with the goal of checking the finances of charities and nonprofits. But the Supreme Court's majority felt otherwise this week. So what is the context here, Jessica? Yeah, so the context, as you said, there was this policy that major donors of charities, nonprofits that essentially did business in California had to give these Schedule B, something that's already given to the IRS, to the California Attorney General. The California Attorney General said, look, we need this information because we oversee nonprofits and we want to make sure that nonprofits aren't engaging in fraud and aren't abusing the structure 
the corporate structure. And the Supreme Court said, mm, no, you really don't. You just want this for administrative ease because you can get this information from the federal government. Now, that's the decision in that case. But the way the court went about the decision is really, really important. And I think that's why Chief Justice John Roberts held this decision for himself. Because what the court did, in my mind, is really change the standard of review by which we use to look at challenges to disclosure laws and maybe to contribution limits. And I know this is going to sound like, how can this possibly be so consequential? Well, let me try and briefly explain. It's so consequential because let's say that there's a disclosure law in California and it gives the public information about who's contributing to their candidates. Well, this seems important. It will allow us to evaluate our candidates, to kind of put them on a political spectrum, to know more about them than their stump speeches might indicate. But now the candidate wants to challenge that particular law because she says, well, it violates my First Amendment rights to have to provide this information, or much more likely, the donors challenge that law because they say it violates my First Amendment rights to have to publicly give this information. Now what the court has said is that there's a much higher standard of review that's used in order to determine whether or not those laws are still permissible under the First Amendment, which is just a long legal way of saying, if you like disclosure limits, I'm worried about you. If you like contribution limits, I'm worried about you. And we could be looking at a situation where we're going back to pre-Watergate era, where we really didn't have campaign finance restrictions. Uh, and but it's in a way worse than pre-Watergate because now we have PACs and now we have super PACs and now we have so much more money flowing through our system. So these two decisions, Joe, in my mind, they both really act to undermine uh, fairness, accountability uh, in our political system. And I would say if there's one takeaway, it's let's not rely on our government for a lot of these issues at least in the short term. Let's talk to our neighbors about whether or not they're registered to vote and help them get to the polls. Let's talk to our neighbors and friends about who these candidates really are. Let's you know, aggregate useful information about our candidates. But I don't know that we can rely on the government to make sure that they provide us with these protections or this information right now. Thank you, Jessica. I agree. I think we are in a situation where it is more important than ever before to participate in our participatory government. And uh, that wraps up our Supreme Court news for this episode, which brings us to the most surprising legal news of the week. On Wednesday, disgraced actor, comedian, and the artist formerly known as America's dad, Bill Cosby, was released from prison after a Pennsylvania court overturned his sexual assault conviction. After that 2005 conviction for sexual assault, 
Cosby was sentenced to serve three to 10 years. There were several women who accused Cosby of similar behavior, but the case that landed him in jail involved the drugging and sexual assault of Andrea Constant in Cosby's home in 2004. But after three years in prison, Cosby is now a free man. And a lot of Americans, including myself, were stunned by this news. Can you please explain to us what happened here, Jessica, and why you think this is the proper outcome for this? Yes. And let me first start with, I have no personal celebration at seeing Bill Cosby walk as a free man. I think that the allegations against him are extremely credible. And on one level, it is so deeply dispiriting. And I really, really hope that victims of sexual violence do not take this to mean that the system is stacked against them or that they shouldn't come forward or that they can't get protection in the criminal justice system. That's not what this decision means. I know it's so hard to hear that past the headlines, but this decision has in no way says he's innocent. It doesn't touch the sexual assault claims here at all. It has to do with something completely different. So what does it have to do with? I'm going to be a little bit general here, but basically there's an original prosecutor who says to Bill Cosby, you should testify in this civil case. And if you do, we won't prosecute you. You'll have protection against self-incrimination. So go ahead and testify, give information in that civil suit, and don't worry, we won't prosecute you based on what you say. Fast forward, that prosecutor retires, a new prosecutor takes his place, and that new prosecutor looks at the information in, that Bill Cosby gave in that civil suit, in part, and other information, and decides, actually, we are going to go forward and prosecute, which the problem here is that it goes against the non-prosecution agreement. So what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said here is, look, if a prosecutor tells you we're not going to prosecute, then you need to be able to rely on that. Now, let's pause for a moment. Now, we can say, sure, you need to be able to rely on that. But Bill Cosby is a bad actor, by which I don't mean a bad performer, a bad person in our society. And so, so somebody went back on a non-prosecution agreement. Like, can't we look the other way in this particular instance? And the answer is no, because let's think about all of the reasons that we need people to be able to rely on a prosecutor's word when they say, we won't go after you. And in fact, it increases public safety if prosecutors can be trusted. So let's imagine that there is person X who has committed a misdemeanor, but they have information about person Y who has committed felonies against children. Person X is not going to give the prosecutor that information until they know they won't be prosecuted. The prosecutor says, I promise Person X says, okay, here's all this information about person Y. Go get that person who is a real threat to public safety. You now have the information to go get that person. We can't, in my hypothetical, go after person Y until person X is comfortable that the non-prosecution agreement will, in fact, be, um, be respected. And so 
I have nothing to celebrate in the sense of seeing Bill Cosby outside of a prison cell. I do have something to celebrate in the sense that this is a decision that supports the rule of law. It supports a broader systemic goal of making sure people can rely on what prosecutors say. And again, I just hope nobody thinks this means that they should not come forward and try and seek justice if they are victims of, um, of sexual violence. All right, Jessica, 60 women have accused Cosby of rape, sexual battery, or other sexual misconduct with a pattern of accusations of drugging them as well, in addition to two accusations of alleged child sexual abuse of girls who were 15 years old. So with the court of opinion being very, very different from the legal reality here and the court of social media opinion as well, is this the end of the story for Bill Cosby, legally speaking? So it's the end of the criminal story, as far as I can see. One of the reasons that Pennsylvania case was so important is that I think it was the last case where the statute of limitations hadn't run, meaning you could still bring the case before too much time had gone by. Now, I believe there's still another civil case that's pending right here in Los Angeles. But in terms of criminal actions. I think that this is the end of the road. If if I'm wrong and there's another case that's pending, um, that's possible. But everything I've seen indicates that, in fact, there are no more potential criminal penalties here. All right, Jessica, thank you so very much for that. Now, in the midst of all the other legal and political news of the week, Donald Rumsfeld, the only person to serve as defense secretary for two different administrations, the architect of the second Iraq war in the aftermath of September 11th, died Tuesday at 88 years of age. He was in Taos, New Mexico. Rumsfeld served under four presidents in some capacity and had a combative public persona. He was born in Chicago in 1932. And when he was a young man, he was an Eagle Scout, and he graduated from Princeton in 1954. He was a wrestler in college, which is something he seldom failed to remind adversaries during meetings. He was an aviator in the Navy as well. He was elected to the House of Representatives serving Illinois' 13th District, which coincidentally is where I went to college. It was before my time there. He was re-elected three more times before eventually serving as the White House Chief of Staff and eventual Secretary of Defense to President Gerald Ford. He then spent about 25 years in the private sector as the CEO of a pharmaceutical company as well as some other companies before returning to serve as defense secretary for George W. Bush in 2001. He was 43 during his first appointment and 74 the second time, making him both the oldest and youngest person to serve as secretary of defense. Rumsfeld was the architect of the Iraq war after the September 11th terrorist attacks. In fact, he himself was in the Pentagon when American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the building. Within hours, Rumsfeld was already formulating plans to attack Iraq, saying in a meeting, quote, we need to move swiftly, near-term target needs, go massive, sweep it all up, things related and not. Rumsfeld made repeated claims that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, although none were ever found. Estimates vary, but there may have been as many as 460,000 deaths in Iraq as a result of the United States military action, including what some people believe to be over 100,000 civilians. And with that news, Jessica, thank you very much for all this legal news today. We will talk again very soon. We will, and we have hit the one-year mark on the Passing Judgment podcast, and we're really excited to share 
season three with you. We have, uh, I hate sounding like an infomercial uh, host, but we really do have a lot of exciting things to talk about. And I can't wait. And Joe, thank you for sharing these conversations with me. And thank you so much to our listeners as well. Yes, thank everyone for listening. We can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Day. And uh, you can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica. You can find our podcast, Happy Birthday to Us, on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. We all hope you have a lovely Independence Day, everyone. Take care. We will talk to you soon.